Well, Father, that is our prayer as we, as we encounter you this morning, Lord, I pray that, that, that first and foremost we would remember that, that our God is for us. I pray that we would know what it is to experience that strong and mighty fortress. But Father, also as you, as you teach us, as you speak to us today, would you also call us out of the fortress and into the places that are dangerous? Would we know that you are with us when we do that? Would you teach us in Jesus' name? Amen. Kids, before you go, I got a question for you. Where do you go to learn how to make a banana split? Sunday school. Oh, you are free to go. Get on up out of here. Oh, man. I tell you what, the kids are, uh, I love our kids, but I think they might just be the, uh, uh, they're going to help me find the dirt nap quick. I don't know if you got here early, you'd see that uh, I whooped uh, Autumn in a, in a uh, race around the sanctuary. And when I say I whooped her, um, she really beat me and I'm really tired now. So, um, also, before we get started, there is one thing that I just want to share, that, that every time I find something that, like, like, I've got an expectation that was missed, or I have, like, a, like something, uh, like a pre, uh, or a notion that, that just gets destroyed, it, it bothers me, it sits with me for a while, and then I wonder who else may not know it, and I feel, like, like duty-bound to share. And so, I don't know if you are aware of this or not, but Swedish fish are made in Canada. What? Right? I mean, I don't know, I don't know, on one hand, I'm not sure why that bothers me, but on the other hand, it bothers me. Like, the Swedish fish taste different to me now, knowing that they're not made where I thought they were made. Well, it probably does bother the Swedes more. <laughs> but yeah, so there you go. So um, if you hear nothing else today, just remember that Swedish fish are made in Canada, and we've got to deal with that together. So one of the things that, that, that's great about being in, in a church, like, you know, we are, we stand together. And so even in this, we will endure. Um, maybe just stick with gummy bears. I don't know. But we'll figure it out. Yep, see? That's, yeah. Dylan, I got you, buddy. Ah. Uh, all right, maybe we should get this started here. Um, I almost feel like after something like that, we need to pray all over again. But uh, I know that the Holy Spirit is with us, so we're just going to get started. We are in our series called Abide. And, and in John 15, in, in John chapter 15, we see Jesus use this metaphor of a vine and its branches. And he uses this metaphor to teach us about the way that the life of faith works. In that metaphor, Jesus, Jesus beckons us to draw life from relationship with him, a call to abide or remain is what we see in, in that chapter. Now, the parables of Jesus, then, that, that are found throughout the four Gospels, are, are this, this is his teaching to us that, that is the how-to of this call to abide. And so we've been going through the parables looking for the, that call to abide that, that, that emanates from the words of Jesus. Now, the word that John uses in chapter 15 of, of his gospel that, that we take as abide is the Greek word meno. And we talked about this a lot when we started this, this uh, series. It can be taken to mean uh, remain, abide, continue to dwell. The point that John makes here is that the branches are called to draw life from the vine. And in this manner, 
live everlasting. Now, the reality is that we are all menowing something. We are all abiding in something. We are all drawing life from something. Or maybe a better way to say that is we are all drawing from something. To draw from Jesus is to draw the sustainment of life. We know this. But to draw from anything else is to find the path to death. The parables teach us what it looks like to abide with Jesus. The parables teach us what it is to draw life from the life everlasting. Now, today we're going to call a bit of an audible. Today was uh, actually going to be Good Samaritan Day. We will, we will do Good Samaritan Day at, at some point. But we're moving a parable up in the series due to some current events that are happening. Now, one of the things that, that, that I love about the parables is that, that the parables that Jesus teaches cover a vast diversity of topics. It shows the intentionality of Jesus that his teaching really is virtually about everything that we could experience in this life. He teaches us about everything that we could experience in this life. But it also, it comes from a place of knowledge because he also experienced the things that we experience in this life. One topic that he, that he taught about often is a topic that I don't think I've ever covered. And it's something that we need to remedy, especially given the, the events of the world over the past week. Now, if you've been with us for any length of time, you've likely heard me teach sermons on creation, um, on the entry of sin into the world. You've heard me teach on the establishment of a people that are set apart by God, God's nation of Israel. Uh, I've taught messages about the, the prophets, about Advent and Christmas, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. I've taught about the life of Jesus. I've taught about his death and resurrection. I've taught about the birthing of the age of the church. But one topic I have not taught on that's critical to understanding as we try to reckon what it means to abide is the second coming of the king, the blessed hope, the return of Jesus. To be honest, I don't know why this has never been a focus of, of the teachings, uh, but I guess that now doesn't matter anymore because we're going to do it today. Uh, but why now? And why in this series, but more to the point, why call an audible and bring this message that I have today, why, why bring this forward right now? Now, last Saturday, the world witnessed an event that, that honestly could be the most historical event, the most historically significant event of my life. Some of you with longer experience can think back to things like, like Vietnam. You can think about like the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, maybe we even have those that they can remember Pearl Harbor. All of those things considered, I think that what we witnessed over the last week could be the most his historically significant event that any of us have yet seen. Last Saturday, early in the morning, a coalition of Hamas and other organizations that self-identify as Islamic jihadists conducted a combined assault into Israel. Rockets, mortars, bands of gunmen that rode uh, motorcycles, 
uh, jeeps, uh, some that, that, that uh, paraglided into, um, I- across the border into Israel. In one single day, more Israelis were killed than in the, the previous 23 years of the century combined. And for perspective of, of what that day and the aftermath of that day meant to the nation of Israel, the number dead as a per- percentage of population is similar to an attack on the United States that would kill over 25,000 people. This is a significant deal. It's also significant for, for several other reasons when we deal with the, the, the barbaric nature of the attack and also some of the historical implications of the attack. I will say one thing that, that is a, a huge contrast for me is that what we see in scriptures, we see Jesus say that there's no love greater than, than one that would give their life for a friend. That's one end of the spectrum. There is no cowardice more cowardly than one that would use a human shield. I, and I mean that emphatically, that there is, no, there is no more cowardly act than to take a human and use them as a human shield. There is all kinds of evil that is wrapped up into this historical event that we saw unfold over the past week. Now, I know, I know, when I say I know, I, I, I'm speaking from a place where I know that war in all its forms is a tragedy. There is no war that's not tragedy. This war, though, has a heightened implication because of the the spiritual side of the struggle. The problem that that we face, though, is focusing on the spiritual side while also resisting the political side, which brings us to, to the study of eschatology and the danger of merging political and spiritual when we study eschatology. Now, eschatology is the study of the end times. Now, I would say one thing about the end time study. If you are, um, if, if you have read through scripture, then, then what I would say is that the end times actually began with the ascension of Jesus. So this question of a timeline for me kind of gets settled in that point. I'll, I'll talk about that here in, in a moment in, in a little bit more detail. Uh, but remember that, that all of this today is presented under the mantle, mantle of the call to abide, the call to meno with Jesus. The danger of a non-biblical worldview is present in his teachings because it's so easy to create a non-biblical worldview when we're minnowing something other than Jesus. When we are abiding, when we're drawing life from something other than Jesus, it's very hard to create a worldview that's reflective of what Jesus is teaching in Scripture. If you haven't heard anyone yet, you likely, it, won't like, it won't likely be too long before you do, hear some Christian leader or a, a, a Christian celebrity making reference to the events in Israel in the context of evidence of the beginning of the end times. The problem that I have with that is that often these teachings that focus on the end times misapply scripture and even more dangerously beckon the audience of such teachings to turn inward 
and look to self-protect, which is really a violation of the Great Commission. And so when we look over the events of the week, if it calls us to a place to, to turn inward, to self-protect, that moment should give us pause because that's not what Jesus calls us to do. That type of an outlook is more supportive of, of the, desi- the divisive plan of the enemy more so than it is a, a, a representation of the ministry of reconciliation. One of the things that, 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 that we believe here is that all of Scripture creates one narrative from, from Genesis through, through Revelation. All of Scripture is one narrative for the one plan of the one God to reconcile the world. And this plan ends with the return of Jesus, bringing the kingdom of God in fullness. This is assured. And that assurance is provided for us to give us endurance to do the stuff that Jesus did until he returns, rather than to indulge in fear and hunker down until the smoke clears. This is the plan of God. What's happening here, what's happening outside of this building, what's happening outside of Yellowstone County, what's happening outside of the uh, the United States. This is the plan of God. And God is good. Which means that his plan is good. It also means, if this is his one plan, if this is perfection in planning, What it means for us today is that Jesus is coming, and we have work to do. So a really quick word about being able to use current events to discern when Jesus will return. We can't, so don't. And you don't have to take my word for it. You can join me in Matthew chapter 24. And we see Jesus teach on this issue. Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. His his disciples came to him privately and said, tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? This is a brilliant question. I love that they asked this question. Because I would like to know. But Jesus knows me too well. And he loves me too much to trust me with that knowledge. Because he knows what I'll do. Jesus told them, don't let anyone mislead you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah. They'll deceive many. You will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, and the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world. But all of this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. Then you'll be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You'll be hated all over the world because you're my followers. Many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere. And the love of many will grow cold but the one who endures to the end will be saved and the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world 
so that all nations will hear it, and then the end will come. What we hear in this is a call to joy. To abide in Jesus, to minnow Jesus, to minnow with Jesus, to draw life from the the vine that is Jesus, is to understand that we are to focus on mission, not condition. We're called to focus on what he instructed us to do, not on the events of the world as they apply to the end times. We We are to go with the assurance that we can call his return the blessed hope because it is the victory that we're promised. It will happen. It is happening. We will not see it coming. I believe the scripture is clear on this point. We will not see it coming. And also, what if we were to look at it from this perspective? Even if we could see it coming, we shouldn't see it coming because we should be focused on something else entirely. We should not see it coming because our focus should be on missions, not conditions. The return of the king ought to be the biggest surprise party of all time. It should surprise us because our focus is not on the end because the end is already promised. It's all too easy to read a passage like that and focus on the negative, focus on the conflict, focus on the scary stuff. But again, that's to miss the mission due to the conditions. One overarching theme of the teachings of Jesus is a call to be steadfast. He calls us to be steadfast for a reason, because we're going to need to be. But as we are enduring, we can endure because we remember that this is the God that saves. This is the loving Father. This is the joyful shepherd. The endurance that Jesus calls us to is yet another call to abide. This is another way that we minnow with Jesus when we have endurance. I think a hindrance to endurance is spending more time, at least this has been my case in my walk with Jesus, A hindrance to my endurance is spending more time trying to line up current events with the end times and less time actually doing the stuff that Jesus did and directed us to do because we're his body on earth in the age of the church. So how do we do that well? How do we hold this tension of knowing that the end is near but also knowing that the end may not be near knowing that the future is assured, knowing that there's all kinds of stuff happening, all things around us. How do we do this well? Thankfully, Jesus knew that this would be a struggle. He knew that we would need an answer to that question. Jesus taught us in several parables, many of them coming in in the Gospel of Matthew from from chapters 23 to 25. And one of the things that I, I would just say here when we do the eschatology, the end times class in the winter um, small group, what, uh, what we spend more time in, than th- more time than the book of Daniel, more time than, th- than um, the book of Revelation, we spend in Matthew 23 through 25, 
because I think this is really where we can find what it means to, to know. And, and it is so important for us to know what will happen with the end times. This is where I think that we draw uh, the, the, the bulk of what we need. Now also remember today another point that's revealing itself as we're considering these parables. This story has God as the main character. We are invited participants. The parable of the three servants or the parable of the talents, depending on what uh, version of scripture you have, um, is really, though, in my opinion, as we are looking at this from the, the, from the standpoint of God as the main character, this is the parable of minnowing Jesus to the end. And so because we have been renaming every parable as we go, I figured why stop today? This is the parable of minnowing Jesus to the end. So uh, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 14. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. He then left on his trip. These bags of silver, or these talents, as some versions of the scripture uh, translate them, um, they're obviously money, but the allegory reflects so much more. They reflect the totality of what God gives us. This passage also gives me an opportunity to point out a reality that will give a sound bite to anybody that's looking to, cr to create sound or to, to collect sound bites on me. Um, this one, um, you know, I could pay for later. Uh, but uh, remember that, that I will make a point out of this. But my point, or, that, or my soundbite that I offer is, we are not created equal. Yeah, I see that, you're filming. <laughs> we are not created equal. Let me say that again, just to make sure you heard what I said, and I said what you heard. We're not created equal. Any, any teaching that tells us that we're created equal, just, it's just not the case. We're not created equal. And this passage shows us we're not created equal. The intention of the creator God is not to create equal copies. We are not equal copies of the same model. The idea of equality has been corrupted. We are all loved to complete fullness. So we could find some equality in that. We are all invited to the table. Some equality in that. We all have the same path to the table. But we're not created equal. He created us to be and function differently from each other. Praise God for that. Can you imagine if there's just a bunch of me's out here? Right? Some have abilities to lead massive organizations and corporations and lead whole countries. Others have the ability to master one skill well. And it's this world that says one is more valuable than the other. It's not scripture and it's not God. Let me give you an example if, if, this, if, if you're struggling with this. If, uh, consider for a moment that you would like a mural painted on the side of your house for the neighborhood to enjoy. You could hire Brad, who's probably gonna hire Jess, who both are
are created with the requisite skill, not only to meet your expectations, but likely to exceed them. They know that there's different kinds of paint for different kinds of surfaces. And they actually can do art. But then maybe in a fit of equality, you decide to hire me. You hire me to paint this mural, even though I can't do a lick of art. And my only experience with murals is what, I, what I've seen inside uh, porta potties in Iraq that's driven, dr you know, drawn by Marines. Clearly, we are not created equal. It's secular culture that made some abilities more important than others, some abilities more profitable than others. God, though, created us in accordance with his plan. And so what matters here, what matters to us today is not what we have been given, but what we choose to do with it. Not how much we were given, but what we choose to do with the totality of what we were given. Do we see what we are given as ours to hoard? Do we see more than what we have and we covet that? Or do we get to give? If we see conditions, if we see conditions, but are blinded to mission, what we do with what we are given will be much more different than if we are committed to the mission in spite of what conditions look like, in spite of what might happen in the future. This is not about equality. This is not about how much I have been given. This is not about how much collectively together we have. This is a call for us to menow Jesus by stewarding what he gave us well. Verse 16. The servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earn five more. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. After a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they had used his money. The servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest. I've earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The servant who had received the two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest and I've earned two more. The master said, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling the small amount. Now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Well done and celebrate. I love this picture. You know, we, we often joke, but it's really not a joke about how we love to party because what we see happening in Scripture is just a bunch of parties. This is an example of one of the reasons why we can party. 
This is like the, the parable of the shepherd's joy. The joy that the shepherd has when the shepherd finds that one lost sheep and returns it to the 99. This is like the joy of the woman who found that lost coin. That she swept the floor of her home searching for it until she saw that gleam of silver. This is the joy of that recklessly extravagant father that saw his son coming from a far way. Those stories, this story, the plan of God ends in joy. Assured victory is the best kind of victory, amen? This is the joy that we will find, and that's reason to party. Two servants with, with differing giftedness put the resources that are entrusted to them to work, and they saw the mission of the master achieved and expanded. They were given something, they stewarded it well, and if we look at it from this perspective, they were given something, they stewarded it well, and they found the same desired outcome that the giver has. The giver's desired outcome was an expansion. They took on the giver's mission and saw expansion as well. Then the servant with the, the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant, gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money back. But the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops and I didn't plant, if you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I would have gotten some interest on it. Then he ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one with ten bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this useful servant into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Remember the joy, though, for a second. Before we press on, I do want to address something in this part of the parable that has given me a lot of trouble as I've come to know Jesus. And the more that I've read this, uh, I'll be honest, the, the first time that I read this passage, uh, I, I didn't know what I was reading. It didn't seem that, that I could make sense of, of what I was reading with other things that I had read in the, in the gospel. It gave me a lot of trouble. The servant calls the master a harsh man, and he also accuses him of, of theft. He, he's so afraid of this man that, that he, he buries this treasure and he brings this accusation of, of gathering things that, that don't belong to him. What we have to keep in mind here is when the master says, if you knew I harvested where I did not cultivate, it almost sounds like he's agreeing with that characterization. That's really where I, like the crux of my trouble is what I read into that was he's agreeing with that characterization. The reality, though, is that, that I am reading agreement into the dialogue when it really doesn't exist. This is not agreeing. This is repeating back. This is the master 
pointing out the folly of the argument. The fact that, that truly, that, that if things that, that this servant were accusing him of, this servant acted more in self-protection. This treatment of the third servant might seem overly harsh and outside of the character of God, but, but we need to keep this in mind. When we read this parable, like when we read all of the others, these parables are not meant to be lifted out almost in the way that we're doing them. So you could ask me the question, well, then why are we doing that? It's a good question we'll get to. Um, but they're not meant to be lifted out as the full and complete presentation of the character of God. These parables work together in the entire narrative to draw out the picture of what it is for us to meadow in Jesus. When we read scripture in its entirety, we see that Jesus is sent in the world as a personal self-expression of the love of God. And this parable is placed at the end of the gospel narrative when Jesus is about to give his life as ransom for many. N.T. Wright puts it like this. When Jesus speaks of someone being thrown into the darkness outside where people weep and grind their teeth, we must never forget that he was himself on the way into darkness where even he would sense himself abandoned by God. Jesus gives his life so that our transgressions would not lead to the same. It is not a stretch to say that what Jesus did was to ensure that nobody else ever would have to feel what it is to be cast into the outer darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth. The secondary point to this parable is that our imaging of God once again becomes important to how we interact with him and what he gives us. And we can see this from the third servant. This third servant imaged God in, in, a, in a way, well, the, the image was faulty. So when we image God as an angry father, when we have an image of God as, as a, a, a parental figure that can't be bothered, when we image God as if we do bother him, he's going to get pretty ticked off at us and lash out. When we think of God as, as a wrathful taskmaster that's going to judge what we do and how we do it. When we have this image of God, the way that we use our gifts will be affected. When we see God from this negative light, when we see God as harsh, that leads us to a place of more self-protection than it does of actually being able to operate with this economy of God that we get to give. When we think of God as someone we have to please, when we think, when, 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 that, when our image of God is, is broken, we look to hoard and collect rather than to share. The two servants that invested 
that saw the expansion of the intent of the giver. They saw the, the, the giver as a loving father. They saw a joyful shepherd. They're able to utilize what they've been given because they understood that it will end in that same love and joy and the kingdom is expanded. Now, there is a danger in making this uh, too heavy of a message. I mean, it's a pretty light passage, right? There is a danger in making this too heavy of a message because that would indulge the misconception that living a life minnowing Jesus is too costly and too painful to endure. It is not too costly and too painful to endure. It is just costly and just painful enough to endure. But we have to remember the joy that comes and the party that follows when Jesus encounters a servant that stewards well. This is an important moment to remember because it reaffirms this idea of focusing on the mission rather than the conditions. Evaluating the conditions of the world, evaluating all of the stuff that we face, evaluating the work of the enemy amongst us can have outcomes in fear, hopelessness, and despair. Many people that focus on end times theology live in a place that looks fearful and hopeless, often far more concerned about what the enemy is doing in our world than being concerned about how our activity robs the enemy when we function as the church. Eschatology is important in context. It's important to know end times theology. It's important for us to know the scripture. It's important for us to understand the prophecy that's provided to us. But as important as it is to know the context of this theology, Jesus provides the context with this parable. The context is not condition, it's mission. This stuff will happen. Almost we can hear this call to like just maybe take comfort in the fact when it does happen, because I told you it would. Focus here. To abide in Jesus, to menow Jesus, to draw life from the vine, is not to find fear in the events that lead to the return of the king, but to be energized by the fact that all of this is God's plan and we have a role to play. Come what may. And stuff has come and stuff will continue to come. We remember that faith is a product of participation. As we participate with the plan by abiding in Jesus, by menowing Jesus, our faith grows. And that faith eliminates the fear of current events. So, we start by taking stock of what's been given to us to steward. We take stock of the talent issued to us. Next, we evaluate who we can give it to.
and then we ride together with God's plan until he returns or until we join him in the resurrection. We are armed with the presence of the living God. There is no cause for fear regardless of what comes our way. We have a mission and we are armed with the most awesome power. So I close with this from Matthew chapter 12. This is my final point on eschatology, my final point on end times, my final point on what it is to abide with Jesus in the midst of this. But if I'm casting out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. For who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger. Someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. Vineyard. The strong man is bound. It's time to read his house. Thank you.